America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Our guest is Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, NATO's top international civil servant. Prior to his appointment to Secretary General, Mr. Stoltenberg served as the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change from 2013 to 2014. He served as the Prime Minister of Norway twice, from 2000 to 2001, and from 2005 to 2013. Throughout his distinguished career in the Norwegian Parliament, Mr. Stoltenberg served as Minister of Industry and Energy, Minister of Finance, and leader of the Norwegian Labour Party. Mr. Stoltenberg holds a postgraduate degree in economics from the University of Oslo. As Secretary General of NATO, Mr. Stoltenberg has led the alliance amid violence in the Middle East, the war in Afghanistan, refugee crises, deadly terrorist attacks, Russian aggression on Europe's eastern frontier, and the expansion of Chinese influence in Europe. Mr. Stoltenberg is the second longest serving NATO Secretary General. The European continent faced widespread economic devastation and instability in the wake of World War II. In the late 1940s, the United States, along with like-minded nations, devised plans and created institutions that rebuilt Europe and became the foundation for the current international order. In 1948, President Harry S. Truman enacted the Marshall Plan, named for its creator, Secretary of State George C. Marshall to provide aid to Western Europe. The United States, Canada, and Western European nations founded NATO in 1949 to provide collective security to its member states against the Soviet Union. The cornerstone of NATO's collective defense is stipulated in Article 5. An armed attack against one or more allies in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. NATO was the main vehicle for Western collective defense throughout the Cold War. When West Germany joined NATO on May 6, 1955, at the end of the Allied occupation, the Soviet Union responded by creating the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact divided Europe figuratively by the Iron Curtain and literally by the Berlin Wall in 1961, and the border complex of fences, walls, and minefields constructed along the frontier between the free world and communist authoritarian police states. Greece and Turkey joined NATO in 1952, and Spain joined in 1982. When the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact collapsed in 1991, NATO continued to contribute to collective security through crisis response, military monitoring operations, and interventions, including responding to the violence following the breakup of Yugoslavia in southeastern Europe. In the last 20 years, 14 more European states joined NATO, including the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland, in 1999, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, 
Slovakia and Slovenia in 2004, Albania and Croatia in 2009, Montenegro in 2017, and Northern Macedonia in 2020. After the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks against the United States, NATO invoked Article 5 for the first time. In the following decades, NATO led the UN-mandated International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, trained Iraqi military and police forces to enhance state capacity building from 2004 to 2011. In 2011, a NATO-led coalition intervened in Libya to implement United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973 and responded to growing civilian casualties during the first Libyan civil war. NATO has and continues to contribute peacekeeping support and humanitarian relief in the Western Balkans, Africa, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean. In December 2019, NATO leaders asked Mr. Stoltenberg to lead NATO 2030, a forward-looking reflection process to make the alliance stronger and more robust in an era of increasing global competition. NATO leaders endorsed the NATO 2030 Agenda at the June 2021 summit. The agenda will see NATO adapt to prepare for unpredictable emerging challenges in terrorism, cyber attacks, disruptive technologies, climate security, and innovation. In direct response to challenges the alliance faces from Russia and China, NATO transformed its strategic concept in June, and Finland and Sweden are in the final stages of NATO membership. We welcome Secretary General Stoltenberg to discuss these initiatives and threats to European and international security as NATO faces an aggressive revisionist Russia that attacked Georgia in 2008, invaded Ukraine in 2014, tried to assassinate Sergei Skripal in 2018, and Alexei Navalny in 2020 with banned nerve agents, violated the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, conducted multiple cyber attacks, and waged sustained campaigns of political subversion and disinformation. Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022 and its continued aggression presents the most serious threat to European security since the end of the Cold War. Secretary General Stoltenberg, welcome to Battlegrounds. It is great to see you again. It was such a privilege to work with you years ago. And, and let me just say, on, on behalf of all of our viewers, thank you for your leadership at this critical time. Great to host you on Battlegrounds. Thank you so much for having me. And it's great to see you again, H.R. McMaster, because we worked closer together for some time when you were National Security Advisor. And, and that proved very well that you are a strong personal supporter of our transatlantic alliance. And I'm extremely grateful for what you have done uh, in helping to support NATO, the bond between North America and Europe. And uh, of course, uh, the, the importance of uh, North America and Europe standing together is even greater now when we have a, a war going on in Europe. So it's great to be with you all uh, today. Well, Mr. Secretary General, I had the privilege of, of being part of NATO for my whole career, 34 years in the Army. and. It was in it really November of, of 1989, our regiment was patrolling the east-west German border when, when East Germany lifted travel restrictions to, to, to the west, and, and the Cold War ended, right? East German government faded away, the Soviet Union broke apart, and, 
And of course, it's almost unimaginable, right? What we're seeing now is a return of a major war to Europe, uh, the first really major war in, in Europe since since the end of World War II. So I'd like to ask you, I know our viewers are really anxious to hear, what is your assessment of, of the situation? You know, what would have been you know, the really the most difficult challenges for you in, in this war? And and uh, and and how do you how would you grade you know NATO's response to Russia's brutal aggression with this reinvasion of, of Ukraine, which began on February twenty fourth of of this year? So what we have seen is that um, Ukraine has been able to push back and to uh, uh, liberate territories that uh, Russia um, occupied earlier in the war, and I think that. Uh, and, and recently, also liberate Kherson or the the, the the areas on the on the west bank of the deeper river, and I think that fundamentally demonstrates uh, the following, and that is that President Putin made two big strategic mistakes when he decided to invade uh, Ukraine. The first was to totally underestimate the strength the courage of the Ukrainian armed forces, the Ukrainian uh, people, and the Ukrainian political uh, leadership. Uh, he thought that he was going to take control of Ukraine within uh, days or a few weeks. Uh, 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 he has not m been able to do that at, at all. Actually, he's now losing ground in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, second, he totally underestimated the unity of uh, uh, NATO allies, the United States, all the NATO allies and partners uh, in uh, providing support to Ukraine. So the combination of the um, bravery, the courage of the Ukrainian armed forces combined with uh, the unprecedented level of support from uh, NATO allies and partners have actually enabled the Ukrainians to first uh, push uh, uh, the Russian forces out of the north, uh, the territories around um, Kiev, uh, then to push them out of the territories in the east, uh, in, in Kharkiv, and then now also make significant gains in the south. But, uh, of course, we should not underestimate Russia. They still possess uh, a large number of troops, uh, uh, significant military capabilities, and they have also demonstrated the willingness to, 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 to bear uh, significant losses and also to inflict brutal uh, violence uh, on uh, on uh, on Ukraine. Uh, so, the, uh, so we should not underestimate uh, uh, Russia. We need to continue uh, to provide um, support to Ukraine to ensure that President Putin doesn't win. You know, Mr. Secretary General. You know, there, there's a there's a lot of talk really about you know the threats of of escalation of the conflict, and I think it's worth pointing out to our viewers right that the conflict is already expanded beyond Ukraine. It involves the whole Black Sea region, for example. It's it's uh, it's a the conflict has affected energy markets and and food markets and of course the humanitarian catastrophe associated with Russia's brutal invasion has gone well beyond its borders in, in terms of uh, the refugees who have, who, have, who have moved mainly into other European countries bordering countries. Uh, what I would like to ask you, you know, just after this recent uh, missile landing in in um, you know in in Poland, are you concerned about escalation? I mean, personally, I'll just tell you, Secretary General. I mean, I I think the person who has the most to fear from escalation is Vladimir Putin, and and I think what he hopes to do is to stoke fears of of escalation or an expansion of the conflict, so that we meter or reduce our support for the Ukrainians. But I'd love to hear how do you think about the prospect of the war escalating, potentially to involve NATO in a more direct way. NATO has fundamentally two tasks um, in this war. One is to 
provide support to Ukraine, to help them uh, stand up for freedom, uh, democracy, to, to protect their own country, uh, defend their own country. And we do that. Uh, uh, the other uh, main task of NATO is to prevent escalation. Uh, because uh, the war that goes on now in Ukraine is, 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 is uh, inflicting a lot of suffering and damage uh, to the people of Ukraine and on Ukraine. Uh, but of course, a full-fledged war uh, between Russia and uh, NATO uh, will uh, be so much worse, will inflict so much more suffering and will really be dangerous uh, uh, for uh, uh, the whole of uh, of NATO. So therefore, we uh, uh, need to prevent escalation. And uh, the way we do that is that uh, we have significantly increased our military presence in the eastern part of the alliance. Um, we we actually we, we were not surprised when President Putin invaded Ukraine in February, uh, because we had very precise and good intelligence predicting exactly what was going to happen. So we were well prepared meaning that in the hours of that morning we were able to convene the north atlantic council all the 30 allies we made decisions um uh on on, on sending a clear uh, united message on the statement uh, uh, agreed the statement but more importantly uh we agreed to activate the nato defense bands uh so we uh, significantly increased our military presence in the eastern part of alliance uh, and now there are more than forty thousand troops in the east uh, in the direct nato command uh, backed by a significant uh, air and naval power. Uh, and of course, by sending this message, by increasing our military presence, we are sending a clear message to Moscow uh, that an attack on uh, a NATO ally will trigger a response from the whole alliance. Uh, and, and, and we do that uh, not to provoke conflict, not to provoke escalation, that, but to prevent conflict, to prevent escalation, because Russia I must know and they do know that that we stand together and nato is ready to respond if there is an attack on a nato ally and by doing that we are preventing escalation you know secretary general you mentioned up front these these flawed assumptions that that putin had and of course all of us are in awe and have tremendous respect for ukrainians and, and the valor and the courage that they've demonstrated but you know putin did he, he thought that nato was weak right he thought that nato would would be divided, that he could maybe fracture NATO. But what he's getting instead is a move toward NATO enlargement with Finland and Sweden in the process of being accessioned into NATO. It could, could, I, could I just ask you for your overall assessment of the strength of the alliance, any concerns that you have, if you could share them with us? And then what are the prospects for, for Finland and Sweden uh, joining the alliance formally here in the near future? NATO is the most successful alliance in history uh, because of two reasons. Uh, one is our unity, and we have demonstrated unity throughout this uh, crisis. Uh, uh, all allies are providing support to Ukraine. Of course, the United States, being by far the biggest ally, are, 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 is providing the most. But, but European allies are also now, uh, and, and Canada, are also uh, providing significant support to uh, Ukraine. And on top of the military support, uh, uh, European allies are also, of course, helping with uh, economic financial support, uh, but also, of course, uh, uh, hosting uh, millions of, uh, of, uh, of Ukrainian uh, refugees. So we have demonstrated unity in supporting uh, uh, Ukraine. So that's the first, as I say, 
reason why NATO is a successful alliance is that uh, whenever it is needed, we are able to stand together uh, and, uh, and uh, help and protect uh, each other. The other reason why NATO is uh, so successful as a military alliance is that we have been able to change, to, to, to adapt when the world is changing. And that's exactly what we have done uh, over the last uh, years. The biggest uh, adaptation of our uh, alliance, the biggest reinforcement of our collective defense since the end of the Cold War, with, uh, for the first time in the history of NATO, uh, combat-ready troops uh, in the eastern part of the alliance, in the Baltic countries, in Poland, in Romania, in the eastern part of the alliance, uh, a high readiness uh, of our forces, and also after years of cutting defense spending, all NATO allies across Europe and Canada have, uh, have, have now started to increase defence spending and added significant amounts uh, to our defence uh, budgets. So, so all in all, this, this sends a clear message of on NATO's ability to, to adapt and to respond. Uh, um, President Putin, um, before he invaded Ukraine, he um, uh, proposed uh, uh, what he called a security uh, uh, treaty with NATO where he wanted NATO to uh, close the door, no more NATO membership, um, right. guarantee no additional members, and he wanted also NATO to remove all our forces and what they refer to as military infrastructure uh, from uh, all those NATO allies that have joined after 1997, meaning all uh, Eastern allies in, uh, in Europe, Poland, Romania, the Baltic countries. Uh, this shows that the war was not only about Ukraine, it was all, all, also about the idea that he wanted to stop NATO, to limit NATO. And he's getting the, the opposite. He wanted less NATO on his borders, he's getting more NATO on his borders. Partly with more military presence uh, in NATO countries, um, especially in the east of the alliance. Uh, but also by uh, now uh, two new NATO allies, two new NATO members. Finland and Sweden, and no one thought that was possible before the invasion. Uh, right. After the invasion, uh, Finland and Sweden decided that now the time has come to apply for full membership in NATO. And at the summit in uh, the NATO summit in Madrid in June, uh, all 30 allies decided to invite Finland and Sweden to join. We signed the accession protocols, and so far, already 28 allies have ratified in the national parliaments uh, Finnish and Swedish uh, membership. So, so, so that's in a way the third mistake he, uh, he made. He underestimated Ukraine, he underestimated the unity of, uh, of uh, NATO allies, but he also underestimated the consequences uh, for those countries in Europe that are not uh, NATO uh, members, especially Finland and Sweden, because now they are joining uh, NATO and NATO demonstrates that NATO's door is open and we become stronger uh, with Finland and Sweden as members. You know, Secretary General, in December 2017, I brought this decision to President Trump to, to provide defensive capabilities to Ukraine, javelin weapon systems and other, other capabilities. And, you know, he had been having some people in his ear, you know, before that saying, hey, you know, this will provoke Putin. But the point that I made to him, and, and of course shared by his advisors, uh, was that, hey, Weakness is what provokes Putin, <laughs> and and uh, and he made the decision at that time to begin providing uh, defensive capabilities to the Ukrainian armed forces. A, a significant decision, but there are people who make a similar argument these days to say that NATO is provoking uh, provoking Putin. What do you say about those who who want to to close NATO's doors? And 
And and what do you think? How do we? How should we think about the expansion of NATO to to include Ukraine or Georgia and and, and, and other countries? NATO is a defensive alliance, and we have proved that uh, throughout our history for more than seventy uh, years. Uh, we are there to protect and defend uh, all allies. Uh, and again, by standing together, one for all, all for one, uh, uh, our collective security guarantees, uh, we are pursuing peace, we are preventing war, and we did that throughout the Cold War, and we've done it uh, uh, also after the uh, end of the Cold War. Um, uh, this whole idea that, that, it, that it is a provocation uh, that uh, uh, independent sovereign nations joins NATO rests on this absolutely wrong assumption uh, that ally that, that 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 countries don't have the right to choose their own path. Uh, Russia signed to many different documents, starting with the Helsinki Final Act in 1974, and and subsequently many other documents where they have signed uh, to or, or signed up to that every nation has the right to choose their own path. And and, and on NATO Ukraine, is, on Ukraine, on Ukraine, I would say the Budapest Agreement in '94. I mean, yeah, they guaranteed Ukraine's sovereignty. Uh, uh, yeah, also they, they, they didn't only sign up to Ukraine's right to choose their own path, but they also signed up to the uh, to recognize the, the specific borders, the international recognized borders. Uh, uh, and they did that after Ukraine agreed to uh, uh, to get rid of all the nuclear weapons, uh, but in, in exchange for security guarantees from, from, uh, from many countries, including Russia. Um, but my point is that if we, if we believe that every nation has the right, right to choose their own path, then it's not a provocation that, for instance, Latvia, a small uh, uh, country bordering Russia, decides to, 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 to join NATO. Uh, NATO has not pushed Latvia into, or Poland, or, or whatever country we speak about, uh, we never pushed any country into, into our alliance, but we respect their free democratic decisions. And I myself, I'm coming from a small country bordering Russia, Norway. And, uh, and of course, uh, when Norway joined NATO in 1949, uh, 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 the Soviet Union, uh, 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 they said that was a provocation, it was a threat. But I'm very glad that uh, Washington, London, Paris, the other major powers in, in NATO at that time said, well, it's for Norway to decide whether we want to belong to, uh, to, uh, to NATO or not. And therefore, NATO, Norway was allowed to uh, well, welcomed into NATO in, when NATO was founded in, in, in 1949. So, from, so, 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 so the idea that when independent sovereign nations, uh, through democratic decisions, decides that they will be part of NATO, that's not a provocation, this is not a threat. It's their democratic right to do so. And the whole idea that Russia has the right to, in a way, deny these countries uh, to choose their own path, that is to re-establish uh, the, uh, the, the system of spheres of influence, where big powers can decide what small neighbors can do. That's a more dangerous world. And of course, it totally undermines the sovereignty, the democratic right, the freedom of uh, countries to decide their own future. So that's the reason why it is important to respect Finland and Sweden. NATO has never pushed Finland and Sweden into NATO. But when they decide to democratic processes in their countries that they want to join, of course, we welcome them into NATO. It's not a provocation, it's not a threat, but it's a consequence of the threats that Russia posed on Finland and Sweden while trying to deny them the right to choose their own path. And Secretary General, we've seen we've seen Turkey and, and Hungary you drag their feet, drag NATO's feet, because you need you need unity to bring in Finland and Sweden. Are you confident about Finland and Sweden being granted membership to NATO? 
Yes, I'm confident that that will happen um, uh, uh, for many reasons. First of all, because all 30 allies, uh, including Turkey, uh, um, uh, made a historic decision in Madrid in June to invite Finland and Sweden. And all 30 allies uh, uh, has, have signed the accession protocols. Uh, and, and so far, this has been the fastest accession process into NATO, uh, every NATO's modern history. Um, uh, because all of the 28 allies have uh, ratified in their parliament, because after the governments have signed the accession protocols, these, these protocols have to be ratified by the, by the parliament. The, United, the US Senate ratified it actually uh, just uh, a few months after the or early this uh, this uh, this this fall, um, and uh, and now only two allies have uh, not yet ratified Turkey and uh, and Hungary, and I am confident that they will do so, um, also because uh, they all have expressed that uh, Finland Sweden in NATO will strengthen NATO, it will uh, be good for uh, for Finland Sweden, it will not at least be good for the Baltic countries, because if you look at the map you see Finland Sweden being Baltic countries, uh, it, it helps us to protect and defend uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, the Baltic region uh, in a way which will uh, increase stability and security in that region. You, Secretary General, we've been talking about the sort of the crises of the of the present, but you've led NATO really to, to look to the future as well. I mean, just a few years ago, I remember President Macron saying that NATO was brain dead. I think you've proved him wrong, especially with what you described as a a forward-looking reflection to make NATO stronger and fit for the future. And of course, I'm talking about uh, the NATO 2030 concept that, that you've developed, a strategic concept uh, at the Madrid summit uh, earlier, earlier this year. Can you share with our viewers the significance of the updated strategic concept? You know, you've, you've been leading NATO for quite some time now, and, and but what's your vision for the future of the alliance? The strategic concept is NATO's most important uh, document, uh, second to the founding treaty, the Washington Treaty, uh, and therefore we 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 agree uh, the strategic con uh, concept uh, roughly uh, um, every decade. Uh, the last, uh, uh, that's the previous uh, strategic concept that that was uh, uh, so the valid uh, um, concept until June this year uh, was agreed in uh, in Lisbon in Portugal in in 2010. Uh, and in that concept, uh, we refer to uh, Russia as a strategic partner, because at that time we actually worked closely with Russia, and the aim was to establish a truly partnership with Russia. Um, uh, we don't mention China with a single word, and uh, and new and emerging security challenges in cyberspace, but also, for instance, the security consequences of, uh, of global warming is hardly mentioned at all, especially global warming and climate change is hardly mentioned. Uh, the new strategic concept uh, reflects a new uh, reality, uh, the fact that we live in a more dangerous world. Uh, we don't refer to R Russia as a strategic partner anymore, but we refer to Russia as the threat it is uh, to, uh, to our security. Um, uh, and China um, uh, is mentioned. Uh, we don't uh, refer to or don't regard China as an adversary or an enemy. But of course, we say clearly in the strategic concept that uh, China poses a challenge to our interests, to our um, values, to our uh, uh, security. And therefore, we need to also take to in, in, into account China when we uh, address uh, how to best continue to ensure peace and stability 
across uh, NATO, North America, and uh, and Europe. And then we also devote uh, 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 a lot of attention to uh, the security consequences of, for instance, uh, climate change. Uh, NATO is not a, a, an organization that will negotiate the big uh, climate agreements. That's for the UN and others to do. But 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 climate change is a crisis multiplier. It has direct consequences over. Uh, for our uh, security, uh, uh, and therefore it matters for NATO, and that is something we address in uh, in uh, in the strategic concept. So overall, the strategic concept is a blueprint for how to deal uh, with uh, new threats, new challenges in a more um, uh, uh, unstable and unpredictable world, and therefore we need strong uh, uh, international institutions as NATO to ensure uh, peace and stability for NATO allies. Secretary General, you've also been leading NATO to 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 deal with threats, uh, you know, not uh, obviously the, the direct threat from Russian military aggression, but also threats that operate below the threshold of what might elicit a, a military response or invoke Article Four or Article Five uh, of, of the of the NATO treaty. And and this is of course you know cyber threats, political subversion, espionage, information warfare. We've seen a form of Maybe energy warfare, you might you might call it, on the part of of Russia uh, to to coerce NATO and 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 Europe and and the world uh, by the restricting uh, restricting energy supplies and you know, the attack on the Nord Stream two pipeline and and how this represents maybe a new kind of threat to to, to the infrastructure uh, that's that's critical for the economy of of NATO member states. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about about how? You, you crafted this concept and what your vision is for NATO to work together to deal with these threats that operate below the threshold of a direct military threat. You're absolutely right. Uh, and that is that our security rests on strong uh, uh, military to have the armed forces, the military capabilities we need uh, to protect against a military attack. But our security also requires that we are able to address what we refer to as hybrid threats uh, and threats that are uh, below the threshold uh, for triggering Article uh, 5 of our Collective Defense Clause. And that's a wide range of different uh, uh, threats, but it's like uh, in cyber, it's like uh, the, uh, the, the use of energy to try to coerce us or, or to, in, to intimidate us to, or, or to blackmail us from supporting Ukraine. Um, uh, uh, and we have seen the attacks, for instance, or the sabotage against the pipelines in the Baltic Sea, the North Stream pipelines, uh, and there are many other, uh, and we see the information war, the, uh, the disinformation campaigns against NATO, so there's a mixture of many different uh, threats and challenges, which are not military threats and challenges. And therefore, part of the adaptation, the, uh, the modernization, the, 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 the fundamental change of NATO over the last years, is that we have built up our capacity to deal with uh, also these threats, and we need to continue even more in the future. On cyber, for instance, um, uh, we have now established cyber as a military domain alongside air, sea, land. We now have also cyber as a domain because there's no way you can envisage a, 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 a conflict in the future without a substantial cyber dimension is integrated in everything we do. On, when it comes to to critical infrastructure, power grids, uh, 
uh, gas pipelines, data cables. There are a lot of uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, what we have done over the last years is to develop what we call resilience guidelines, meaning guidelines for what we expect NATO allies to, to do to ensure that we have reliable infrastructure. Uh, and, uh, and this is extremely important uh, because we need to ensure that we have yeah, uh, critical, critical infrastructure, which is not uh, vulnerable, at least that we are able to reduce the vulnerability and to ensure that we uh, share best practices and that we have some minimum standards to protect our own uh, uh, infrastructure. Uh, one example is, is what we did uh, regarding 5G networks. <clears throat> Back not so many years ago, it was a big issue uh, that many allies, uh, in a way, thought about that uh, uh, agreeing uh, uh, 5G or, or who was going to deliver 5G net networks was only an issue uh, of uh, of uh, that was a commercial and economic issue. Uh, 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 but of course, it, it has security consequences, and and now allies realize that and they are much more careful about uh, uh, who, which companies who are going to deliver the 5G networks we are now expanding across uh, uh, Europe uh, and also in North America. NATO is a, uh, is a, is a platform, is a, uh, uh, is, a, is, 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 is a place to address these issues. And, uh, and just um, a few days ago, there we had a meeting of the, the senior uh, uh, leads in the different NATO allied countries here in Brussels uh, to address how to coordinate our efforts to address all the different hybrid threats in cyberspace, critical infrastructure, uh, information domain, uh, to ensure that we also address all these other non-military threats that we face. Yes, Mr. Churchill, that's, uh, that's so so encouraging to, to hear because I think for so long uh, we were we were asleep uh, to the threat of of the Chinese Communist Party in particular. And you mentioned five G and and really the this alludes to Huawei, the the Chinese company that is. That acts as an as an extension of the of the Chinese Communist Party and, and its government. How do you, how do you feel that, that it, it sentiment is in NATO now about the competition with China? I'm thinking, Secretary General, about the joint statement that that Russia and and China issued just before the Beijing Olympics, where the the really the message was to to us, right, to NATO countries, hey, you're over, you're finished, Western democracies. This is a new era in which we're in charge. How do you see the competition with China? And do you think that Europe, that NATO is more awake to the kind of pernicious threat of the Chinese Communist Party, which, as you're alluding to, has many dimensions to it, obviously a military dimension, but certainly a very strong uh, economic dimension as well. So NATO allies are much more aware of and much more <clears throat> focused uh, uh, on uh, the potential uh, threats and challenges um, that uh, that uh, we see also uh, related to the uh, uh, the rise of China uh, and, and and not least the the increasing uh, partnership between China and uh, and uh, and Russia, <clears throat> and we have seen an enormous uh, transformation change in NATO because not so many years ago this was hardly an issue that was discussed at NATO. Of course, individual allies that like the United States and others have of course uh, addressed uh, addressed. Uh, uh, China for many for many years, uh, but uh, but uh, but of course uh, the new thing now is that we do this as NATO together, and therefore uh, I, I think it's important also to realize that uh, there is no way we can distinguish between Russia uh, 
Also, we, we cannot we cannot regionalize all the threats and challenges we face because NATO will remain a regional alliance, meaning North America and Europe. But North America and Europe, we face uh, global challenges: cyber, space, terrorism. Terrorism brought us to Afghanistan. So these are global things, and China <clears throat> is coming closer to us. They're trying to control our infrastructure. We see them in Africa. We see them in the Arctic. And uh, the huge uh, program they have for developing new nuclear uh, weapons, uh, uh, advanced weapon systems, but also long-range uh, nuclear weapons matters for the uh, for all NATO uh, allies. The so the cyber, so, the cyber the threat and industrial espionage, yeah. exactly. Yes, yeah. all of that matters. So 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 the, the, so we need to address all these global challenges, including uh, um, uh, China, and of course the fact that 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 China signed. Uh, uh, an agreement, as you uh, referred to, I alluded to, with Russia, or the President Putin and President uh, Xi signed an agreement where they say that their partnership is without limits. And for the first time, China uh, stated uh, in, in a statement in particular uh, that they don't want NATO to enlarge. They actually uh, were against uh, Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. Uh, and also uh, the way China has not been able to condemn uh, the invasion of uh, Ukraine shows how uh, how Russia and China are working more closely together. In response to all of this, um, uh, we have now started to work more closely with our Indo-Pacific Indo or Asia-Pacific partners. Uh, so for the first time in NATO's history, we had the, the, the heads of state and government from uh, South Korea, from Japan, uh, from New Zealand and Australia participating at the NATO summit. And that demonstrates uh, how we are now working more closely with them to deal with these more global challenges. You know, Secretary General, your, your, your vision, I think, is, is being borne out right now. And I really appreciate your, you know, your, your hard work uh, to, to bring NATO up, to revise NATO and, and, to, and the strategic concept to deal with these challenges we're talking about. You, know, you have a long history in in climate policy roles uh, in the in the UN and 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 how has your how has your view of challenges associated with carbon emissions and global warming shifted now that we've seen this example of Germany right Germany you know gave you know Russia course of power over its economy uh, with the Nord Stream pipelines and then made a leap tried to make a leap directly to renewables and that was as we know, a, a leap off a cliff and into Vladimir Putin's arms. So could you maybe talk to our viewers about how you see the interconnected challenges of, of, of climate change and energy security and how that affects international security broadly? Climate change is a crisis multiplier because uh, when uh, we have uh, more extreme weather, when we have more droughts, when we have um uh, uh the melting of the ice in the arctic uh, that all of that uh, uh, in different ways um can fuel conflict competition over scarce resources water uh, uh, land uh, and would also increase the number of people uh, trying to move uh, migration uh so so it's very easy to identify conflicts that uh, maybe it's not directly caused by climate change, but that will be exacerbated and become more dangerous because of climate change. Some of those are actually caused by climate change. Um, uh, so, therefore, NATO needs to address uh, uh, climate change as a security challenge. 
And we do that partly by um, aiming at now being the organization in the world who has the best understanding of the link between climate change and, uh, and uh, security, but also because climate change, uh, rising sea levels, a more uh, uh, wetter and wilder and uh, windier weather uh, will also impact directly how our militaries operate. You know that as an officer, that of course, uh, uh, the, 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 the soldiers, the, 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 the militaries, they operate out in nature. Uh, and uh, when sea levels are increasing, it impacts our uh, naval bases. When our uh, NATO trainers in Iraq have to operate under conditions we have 50 degrees Celsius, uh, extremely hot, we uh, hot weather, and then, of course, it impacts everything from uniforms, operations, how they can operate out there, melting of the ice in the Arctic mats for our maritime operations out there. So we need to adapt NATO to a more extreme weather conditions. And, and thirdly, we need to help to reduce emissions. Uh, um, I'm not advocating in favor of, as I say, uh, green battle tanks that are not effective. Uh, 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 we, but I'm advocating in favor of uh, green uh, battle tanks or armored vehicles or uh, 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 fighter jets that are effective. And I believe they have to, we have to reconcile the need for effectiveness and uh, and being green. And I'm absolutely confident as when the civilian sector is moving more and more in green direction, uh, the most advanced engines, the most advanced vehicles, the most advanced planes in the future will be the green ones. So if we need, if we want to keep the technological edge and ensure that also the future, we have the best battle tanks, the best planes, we need to look uh, into how to also then evolve, develop uh, these uh, uh, these new uh, green technologies within uh, the military uh, sector. Uh, and we were also able then to put specific targets. Uh, we agreed that at the NATO summit um, for uh, how to reduce emissions uh, from uh, NATO bodies and commands, and we agreed to cut by at least 45% by 2030 and move towards net zero by 2050. But again, we need to reconcile the need for uh, effective uh, military capabilities with uh, capabilities that are actually reducing emissions. Secretary General, I'm, I'm going to ask you a tough question now to try to look into the future. And as you as you look at the, the war in Ukraine, I know a lot of our viewers uh, are now you know thinking about how does this war end, right? And and in, and you hear some some leaders, President Macron, you know, uh, others say, well, let's, it's time for a negotiated settlement. And of course, it's difficult to imagine that after the brutalization of Ukraine and 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 you know, I I personally think, Secretary General, that any off ramp for Putin is just a chance for him to look for another on ramp. But but how do you see the future of the conflict in Ukraine? And, and what is your vision for ultimately a resolution of that conflict? First, I think we have to recognize that uh, wars are by nature unpredictable. Uh, so uh, no one uh, is able to say with certainty how this war will end. Uh, but what we can say is that uh, we have an obligation to support Ukraine. Uh, partly because it will be a disaster for the Ukrainians if President Putin wins and is able to, for the first time since the Second World War in Europe, that one country actually grabs, take land from another uh, uh, by the use of military force. Uh, and it will violate the fundamental principle, the sovereignty of uh, countries, the borders. But second, uh, because if President Putin wins, uh, 
we will be more vulnerable because that will send a message uh, to uh, President Putin, to other authoritarian leaders, that if they use military force, if they violate international law, if they invade another country, they can achieve their goals. Uh, and that creates a more dangerous world that will uh, make all NATO allies uh, more vulnerable. Uh, so therefore, it is in our security interest to ensure that President Putin does not win uh, the brutal war aggression in uh, Ukraine. Then we also have to remember that what 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 kind of war is this? Uh, this is not a war between uh, kind of two equal partners. This is an, an aggressor. This is a war of aggression where Russia invades another country. Uh, and what, what what Ukraine does is to defend themselves, and they have the right. It's actually enshrined in in the UN Charter, but but this is about protecting their freedom. Uh, their sovereignty, uh, their democracy. And what NATO does is to support Ukraine in defending freedom. Um, and therefore, also we have to understand that if President Putin and Russia, that actually started this war, if President Putin and Russia stops fighting, then we will have peace. If President Zelensky and Ukraine stops fighting, then Ukraine will cease to exist as an independent sovereign nation. So that's two very different things, because there is an aggressor, and then there is a victim of aggression, uh, uh, Ukraine. Having said all that, of course, most wars, also this war, uh, uh, most likely will end at the negotiating table. But we also know that what happens around the negotiating table is <clears throat> very closely linked to, or is absolutely totally linked to, the situation on, on the battleground, it reflects the battleground, the strength on the battleground. So if we want to achieve a, an outcome of those negotiations which are acceptable for Ukraine, which ensures that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation in Europe, then the best way of doing that is to support them on the battlefield, is to continue to provide weapons, military support, uh, to strengthen their position, that will maximize the likelihood for a negotiated result, which is acceptable for Ukraine. At the end of the day, it has to be Ukraine that decides this. Our responsibility is to help them uh, in uh, continuing to make gains uh, on the battlefield, because that's the best way also to achieve a negotiated, acceptable solution. Secretary General, the last question I'd like to ask you is about the future of the alliance. And when we worked together years ago, uh, I think you know that I was explaining to, to my boss, President Trump at the time, the tremendous value of NATO. And uh, of course, there are those who doubt in the United States, you know, the value of alliances broadly, right? And 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 there are people who are concerned, I think, rightly about you know, burden sharing, for for example, which I think is, has has moved in a very positive direction in terms of members of the alliance investing more in defense you've you've got the a new strategic concept you see i think the the, the relevance the world sees the relevance and importance of the alliance especially in connection with the the, the war in, in ukraine but we, what would you want to tell our our viewers about the value of the alliance and the future uh, of the alliance so first, I would like to thank you for your strong support to NATO, uh, also in the years where you worked uh, at the White House, <clears throat> and that uh, that was extremely important, and uh, and it shows your personal knowledge, also from your military career, uh, about the 
importance of uh, NATO, Europe and North America standing uh, together. Uh, uh, second, I, I understand uh, that, that uh, in the United States there has been some frustration about uh, European allies and Canada not investing enough in Ukraine, in, in, in defense. Uh, but that's also the reason why we actually made this decision in 2014 at our NATO summit in Wales uh, uh, to increase defense spending. And since then, all NATO allies have increased defense spending. And more and more allies are meeting the guideline of spending 2% uh, of GDP on defense. And the vast majority of allies have now plans in place to, uh, to meet the 2% guideline. Uh, so it has really changed. And, and in, in total, uh, European allies and Canada have added 350 billion extra US dollars for defense over these years, and more will come. Uh, so burden sharing is improving. And it reflects that European allies, of course, with the war going on in Ukraine, then they realize, of course, that that we have to invest more in uh, in 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 defense. Then I think the value. Uh, it's obvious, and that is that we are stronger together than alone. Um, two world wars uh, and the Cold War have uh, taught us that uh, peace and stability is ensured when Europe and North America stand together. In many ways, it's obvious for Europeans that, of course, I have an alliance with the United States. Uh, it's good for their, their, their security. But I also believe it's obvious for the United States uh, because it's good to have friends. And in NATO, the United States uh, has friends and allies in a way that no other major power has. Russia, China, they don't have anything like the United States uh, has in NATO, where they have actually uh, soon 31 friends and allies that stand together with the United States. The only time we have invoked our collective defense course was after 9-11 Afghanistan. Uh, uh, second, uh, when I travel to the United States, I meet uh, uh, leaders from both parties who are concerned about <clears throat> the security consequences of China becoming a bigger economy, uh, a lead in many technologies, and heavily investing in new modern capabilities. Uh, so if the, if the United States is concerned about the size of China, uh, then uh, NATO becomes even more important. Uh, because uh, if you take NATO allies together, Europe and North America together, we represent 50% of the world's GDP, 50% of the world's economy, and 50% of the world's uh, military might. And therefore, we are by far the strongest economic and military power in the world as long as we stand together. And that is a good thing also for the United States. So strong NATO is good for Europe, it's good for North America. I don't believe in uh, uh, America alone, I don't believe in Europe alone, I believe in America and Europe together in NATO. Secretary General Stolberg, I can't think of a better way to end this, this, this wonderful conversation. It's so great to be with you again. And on behalf of the Hoover Institution, Thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. And, and thanks especially for your leadership at this critical moment in history. Thanks so much for having it. It has been a great pleasure and great honor and all the best to you. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.